Hey, Future of Ag listener, Tim here. Before we launch into today's episode, I have a very important request of you. I am considering making some changes to the show, and I really want to get your input on this first. I went ahead and created a very short listener survey, and it would be really, really valuable if you could just help me by filling it out. The link is at the very top of the show notes for today's episode. It's only five questions, and it won't take you much time at all to finish, but this input will really help me make some important decisions about the future of this show. If you don't mind, please just hit pause real quickly on this episode and, and go ahead and fill that out. Longtime listeners might remember I did a listener survey a couple of years ago, but this one is totally different and specifically designed to inform the future of this show. So please take a minute right now, fill this out, even if you participated in that last one. It's anonymous unless you choose to provide an email address to be eligible for a giveaway, but that's completely optional. I'm most interested in your feedback. Again, that link is in the show notes, and thank you so much for those of you willing to take a few minutes of your time to provide this critical input. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're curious about where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show. Today's episode really was an eye-opener for me. I mean, e-commerce is nothing new. I think all of us have probably bought more online this past year than ever. But the company we're featuring today, Pinduoduo, has taken this to a whole other level by gamifying e-commerce and making it a social experience. And a big part of their strategy is selling agricultural products online. To me, one of the biggest, if not the biggest driver changing the future of agriculture is going to be consumer preferences, where they buy and how they buy. Today's episode has some pretty incredible insights into how this is changing, specifically in China. And I personally think it's only a matter of time before we see some of this happening in other parts of the world as well. We have on the show Zinyi Lim, who is the Executive Director of Sustainability and Agricultural Impact at Pinduoduo, which means more savings, more fun. The platform, which has been described as where Costco meets Disney, started in 2015 and has grown to over 700 million active users, all in China. Yes, I said 700 million. Incredible. Before joining Pinduoduo in 2018, Zinyi worked for Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC, both in its Singapore and New York offices as a technology and media analyst. She holds a bachelor's degree from Oxford and a master's from Harvard. I'll drop into the conversation here where Zinyi is elaborating on the concept of Pinduoduo being where Costco meets Disney. So that actually came from our founder, the idea of Costco meets Disney. And I think this really speaks to, you know, two very central elements of uh, PDD. For us, our slogan has been more savings, more fun, right? So I think what is driving savings is something that people often struggle to understand. They might think that, oh, you know, things on PDD are cheap just because, you know, they're, they're getting cast offs, right? They're getting low quality things and then trying to sell it on to other people who don't know any better. But I think that's just a very misconstrued notion because um, really what we are trying to provide is a way for producers, for merchants to sell a larger volume of products in a shorter period of time, right? And in so doing, they can reap the benefits of economies of scale 
And how we do that is through this notion of a team purchase. So it starts off by this you know, realization that for a lot of people, what you actually want to buy for things like, say, food or fresh produce, it can be influenced by those around you, right? Nobody wakes up and says, I have to buy a bunch of bananas like today, right? Like you don't necessarily, you know, have to buy the bananas if somebody comes up to you and says like, hey, my neighbor down the street is also in on this deal. Do you want in? We can buy peaches together for like 30% off the market rate. And then suddenly you think, hey, peaches are not bad. Like I don't mind having peaches instead of bananas. And so your demand for bananas on that day just got shifted into, you know, demand for peaches, right? And so that means that the peach merchant basically just got, you know, a bunch of orders coming in in a short period of time. And what that does, especially for agricultural products, is that it gives the merchants a lot more visibility, right? So this is very important for things that are perishable. And so in a matter of just a few years, PDD was able to just, you know, grow very organically to a massive scale in agricultural produce, right? Such that at a certain point, uh, we were indirectly influencing the market price for some of the agricultural products just because we had grown to such a massive size, right? Because people were coming together and forming teams and introducing uh, their friends to, you know, really good deals on the platform, etc. And so over time, as we scaled, we expanded into other categories of products. So today on PDD, you can also buy a TV, you can buy apparel, but you can also buy fruit, right? So it's a one-stop shop. Um, it's a third-party platform, so we don't take any of the inventory. But because we already have over 700 million consumers coming regularly onto the platform, it means that for the merchants, you can get a lot of traffic and close a lot of sales in a short period of time, which is what really matters for people who are really trying to kind of, you know, manage their margins and grow their business with volume. Now, the more fun piece is actually touching on the idea of the team purchase, right? So when you're actually in real life, you know, hanging out at the mall or like browsing, uh, window shopping with friends, it's a very social interactive experience, right? You're actually getting people's inputs like, hey, you know, do you think this looks good on me, right? Like, or like, oh, I like that, right? Maybe I'll get one as well. So there's a piece of that that is often missing from online shopping experiences today, where it tends to be, you know, very individual driven. You go type something into the search bar, you know, filter a little bit, and then you buy your own thing. And, you know, what your friends have been looking at or what your friends might recommend, even though it could be relevant to you, doesn't really show up. It doesn't really influence you. So in the user interface of uh, PDD, this is something that's actually taken into consideration. So as you're browsing through the recommendation feed, which is personalized for you, you might see, you know, a certain product has a tag that says, you know, a store that your friend has bought from or a store that your friend left a five-star review for. And you might also click into certain areas on the app where you can see what your friends have been buying recently. And you can ask them directly like, hey, I saw you bought this thing. I was thinking about getting the same headset, right? Are those good, right? And you can get that direct feedback from trusted sources. I, I don't want to gloss over the fact that your active user base is more than double the size of the entire U.S. population. Is that right? <laughs> yes. That's incredible. So I think that's the amazing thing about, you know, a market like China, right? So everything, when it takes off, it can be at a very large scale. And I think because we've grown to 731 million annual active buyers, it also 
means that we can explore you know, different products that we offer our consumers as well as potentially services. In 2020, we recognized that due to COVID-19, a lot of the farmers in China were not able to access their inputs, right? So usually they would go to an offline kind of affair. Somebody brings the stuff over. They have uh, you know, a couple discussions face-to-face with the salesperson. Well, with COVID-19, none of that was happening. But then a lot of these guys, they're also PDD users, right? So what if they could just go onto the same app that they're buying, you know, their T-shirts and their fridges and whatever from, and also pick up some agricultural inputs, right? So whether it's seeds or fertilizer, etc. So we started to do that last year in response to COVID. And I think, you know, it's just really interesting when you have such a large user base, the number of things that you can try and, you know, see meaningful results for in a short period of time is just staggering. Now, this team buying concept, I guess this is a two-part question for you. First, is that what really has fueled this growth? Is that, okay, I can go buy stuff online anywhere, but I can only buy it with my friends here on Pinduoduo. That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, if yes, does that also work with farmers buying inputs? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think Team purchase is one part of the story, but I wouldn't say that the viral success of PDD hinges entirely on it, right? So I think we were the first to really demonstrate the power of a team purchase in the market. And subsequently, we saw a lot of people also try to replicate that. But inadvertently, what that did was it kind of helped us educate the wider user base about team purchase. So basically, you know, I think people had that close association of a team purchase with PDD, but I think it's the other components on PDD that really make it work especially well for us. So the other aspect that I mentioned was the more fun, right, or the Disney component. So, um, you know, we introduce games on our shopping app, right? So as you're browsing, um, you know, you might not be actively thinking about something to buy, but, you know, you just have a little bit of free time to kill. Maybe you're waiting for the bus, And you might decide to play one of our games, right? It's a very simple game. Anyone from 8 to 80 can play it. You know, you're just watering a virtual tree on Dodo Orchard. And when the tree bears fruit, you actually win a box of fruit, right? Delivered to your house for free. It's, uh, you know, on, on PDD, it's on the house. And that is something that is basically like a gamified loyalty card, right? And obviously, the interactive elements include... You could also visit your friend's trees, right? So because we've seen that you bought things together or you shared a link with a certain person um, and that person reciprocated, you know, you guys are clearly friends, we know that there's a relationship, right? And so all of that is also giving us some information about how you relate to different people in your social circles. So we can then see that, hey, someone might be really influential in a particular product category. So we know then that if... Uh, say a merchant places an ad for a certain product to these groups of power users, they are actually going to have an outsized influence on you know the other users who maybe didn't directly see the ad, but then because of you know this influencer friend of theirs sending them a recommendation, it might then send them down the path of discovering that product. So I think you know because interacting with your friends, um, you know, hanging out, like playing, it's so much interwoven into the user experience. So I think that makes team purchase something that really sticks and performs well on our platform versus other platforms that may have just kind of adopted the form of it, but not really captured the spirit of it. 
right? And I think, you know, as we continue to grow, I think it's really also gone beyond just a team purchase, right? But it's also, you know, encouraging more and more interactions by the users with the platform, right? So like what I mentioned earlier, that social graph of how you interact with your friends, how you influence them and they influence you, that helps us to refine our idea of what it is that you're interested in and give you the right recommendations. Now, on your second question about whether, you know, farmers could be influenced to buy inputs together, I think another element to maybe call out that has been a huge part of Chinese e-commerce lately is uh, live streaming, right? Which I think is also taking off in the US, right, to a certain degree. So when you have live streaming, it is basically bringing a bit of that salesman experience to you, right? Literally to your phone, where you can actually just ask somebody in real time, like, hey, you know, I'm interested in uh, buying this particular product or I'm facing this particular problem. I'm currently, you know, using this product. What else would be similar, right? Or I've never encountered this problem before, right? Where do I begin? And so oftentimes, you know, it's not just you one-to-one with like the store or the merchant. There's a whole bunch of other people watching the live stream you know, they're kind of there with you as well, right? And so you can actually interact and message and also communicate with the other users. So I think that is also helping certain product categories like agricultural inputs, which, you know, may have a higher technical element that helps the customer get the comfort that they need in order to proceed and make a transaction. Is the team aspect logistical? Like if I want to form a team, it needs to be sort of in my neighborhood because you can ship all that volume to one place? Or is it purely a volume play and I might have a team spread across the entire country? Yeah, it's purely a volume play. So um, I think we are well aware of the fact that most people, you know, value the convenience, right, of just having something shipped to your door, right, or to maybe a pickup locker. And the logistics network in China is actually sufficiently well-developed and with very you know aggressive competition, such that actually the parcel price is very affordable. It has been coming down due to the continued optimization in the industry. And so that actually means that you know the individual parcel price, if you as a merchant are now generating much larger parcel volumes, right, because you have so many more orders, you can actually get a favorable rate, right, from these third-party logistics providers. So that does translate to a lower per parcel cost for the merchant just from the economies of scale, not because, you know, all the parcels are now going to one geographical area. Okay. And those 700 plus million active users, are they all in China? Yes. So we are only operating in China. We still see a large opportunity in China. And I think especially when we compare ourselves uh, versus, you know, our more established peers. Uh, in terms of market share, I think uh, estimates have us at only about, you know, the teens, right? So compared to the largest player, that's well over 50%. Uh, there's still a long way for us to just grow and expand. And I think the agricultural products will be a big part of this story. Because when you look across the different categories in China, e-commerce penetration is not that evenly distributed, right? So for things like TVs or apparel, right, electronics and apparel, the penetration rate for e-commerce is much higher, right? So it's very commonplace for people to just think like, oh, okay, you know, I want to buy a new 4K TV. I'll look for one online and have it delivered to the door, right? But you think about the dollar value of that 4K TV. It's so much more than just a bag of apples or, you know, a piece of fish, right? But still, 
over 90% of those purchases for agricultural products are happening offline in China, right? So there's a long sort of runway for us to continue growing uh, in agricultural produce. Very interesting. So, you know, on, on your end, you've got this social component. You're basically like any other social media. And then you've got this e-commerce component. How do those two break down from a business standpoint? You know, are the real revenues in the e-commerce or are the real revenues in the in the social component in the data uh, that can be, you know, utilized? I realize they feed into each other, but I'm just curious from a monetization standpoint, how you look at that. Oh, so it's just an e-commerce business with very strong social elements, right? So if you look at our revenue model, we're a listed company. So about 90% of our revenues come from advertising. You know, we have over 5 million merchants and they can choose to place advertising for their products on our platform. So at minimum, all merchants simply pay, you know, a transaction service fee to sell their products on our platform. And that fee is very low. Um, the standard rack rate is only 0.6%. And that's basically just to cover payment processing. I realize payment processing is higher in the US because it runs on credit card rails. In China, it's a much lower rate. And so it's only 0.6% that covers it. And so for the merchants or, or you know the farmers, the producers, anyone who wants to sell something on our platform, if they feel that they can get a better return, right, they can drive more traffic and more sales by advertising, if they feel it's worth it, they can do that, right? So it's a bit like Google, you know, you can just log into the backend, do a bit of self-service, um, set your budgets, look at the analytics, see how your product is performing, and then also get some uh, insights, right? So what are the trending keywords? And another thing that we've been very you know, active and advocating is this notion of trying to influence the upstream with more downstream insights. So if you think about agriculture, again, you know, it's a decision that sometimes it's not very perfect, right? I think in the US, perhaps you have much more, you know, visibility on the pricing of different products. And of course, there are a lot more sophisticated modeling I think in China, where 98% of the farmers are smallholder farmers, um, you know, they are dealing with a lot of just looking at what sold well last year or like, oh, I heard this guy's growing this thing and it should do pretty well. So there's a little bit of that. But, you know, you might just end up with a situation where whatever you grew ends up being in oversupply, right? And then you're stuck with that product. Well, I think the power of e-commerce is that we're able to basically, like I said earlier, identify, you know, who are the people who are potential influencers. We can target them and move large volumes of certain products that, you know, we know to be in oversupply, right? So then the farmer doesn't have so much of an issue. At the same time, we can also see what people are actively browsing or searching for. And, you know, in aggregate on an anonymized basis, we can also take that information and advise some of the farmers or growing associations that, hey, you know, we are seeing this trend or there's an increasing demand for a certain variety of produce. And potentially, you know, here are the transacted prices, right? We can see roughly how much people are willing to pay. So then you actually, as the farmer, have a lot more visibility on, hmm, okay, if I decide to switch to this particular product, right, this is how much I might be able to fetch in the market. And that data is definitely much more fresh, right? It's not going to be, you know, kind of on an annual basis. It's live, right? It's happening all the time. So I think that's something that we're also exploring. And then I think when we're able to scale it, that could be another service that we potentially just roll out more widely and then maybe charge a small fee for. So there's a lot of things that, you know, we as a platform can potentially empower our merchants with. And because we get paid 
only when the merchants see a good return, which then justifies their investment in advertising on our platform, it does mean that you know our incentives are very much aligned, right? We want to make sure the customer is satisfied, that the users can find what they need, and they'll keep coming back for more, right? Then the merchants will get more business, and then they'll advertise more on the platform. Very interesting. You mentioned kind of like the super influencers on the platform. How do you all encourage and reward the people to build their influence? Yeah, so I think this is something that, you know, has evolved over time. But I think especially as we grew to a large scale, we're always thinking about how to ensure that, you know, the the trust that the users place on the platform is uh, sort of well protected, right? And so one way is to also encourage reviews. So for a marketplace where... We're a third-party marketplace. We have over 5 million merchants. It's very important that there be a live, as far as we can, close to live kind of like feedback loop, right? Whereby users are incentivized to leave feedback, right? To leave reviews of products. So it could be a video, it could be a photo, or, you know, there are some uh, suggested sort of like catchphrases, right? Because after a while, we can actually parse through and see that, okay, most times when people are typing you know, a certain combination, they're trying to say a certain thing, right? So I might just save you a little bit of time. So anything to just cut down the friction to help you, you know, share your review, right? Help you share the information with other people. And so with all of that on the platform, you know, we can then sort of ascertain, okay, is this particular merchant a legitimate merchant, right? Are they uh, selling good quality products? And then we can also see like, okay, you know, certain people's uh, reviews often get a lot of reads, right? Maybe it's just really detailed. They put a lot of pictures. So we also find a way to reward people for that. And then like the influencers, as I mentioned earlier, because of the team purchase, we can also see maybe when Tim is sharing uh, recommendations for snacks, right? A lot of his friends that he sends the messages to all click, right, on his snack recommendations. So we know that like, okay, you know, Tim has a lot of influence in this regard, right? But then when we look at something that's more kind of like a benchmark normal or average, like maybe say, I'm going to take a guess, apparel or something, right? Like people, maybe only half of them open the link or a lot of people just like ignore them. So then we know like, okay, you know, versus the average of like other users, maybe you're not particularly influential, right? For that category, but that's okay, right? Because we know the direction of influence. We know in which categories it matters. And basically that is our own social graph that we build out that we're refining over time, right? As users interact and we get a better idea of what is important to them and what their preferences are. And if I'm an average Chinese farmer in rural China, how does this help me? And maybe if you have a story or two, you could share as an example, that would be helpful too. How does this help me? It seems like this massive platform like Amazon, where I'm having to compete with big, big companies who are trying to sell the same produce that I have, you know, how do I benefit from this? Yeah, so I think one of the major uh, sort of benefits to farmers is that we are basically allowing them to access a much wider pool of users than they would have previously. So I think, you know, given the fragmented nature of the Chinese farming industry, a lot of these farmers um, in the offline supply chain, how they primarily sell their produce is that, you know, they might be a wholesaler or some kind of a gatherer that comes by to the county. 
and says, I'm going to offer this particular price for this product, right? And they don't really have a lot of bargaining power on an individual level because, you know, of their small size. And so, you know, historically, because they had no way of finding the end consumer, it made sense, right, to just hand it off to this guy and then, you know, have it bump along to the different layers of intermediaries before it finally gets to the supermarket where, you know, a consumer might be buying it at a significantly marked up price, which the farmer is only getting a very small fraction off, right? But now, actually, through e-commerce, these farmers, or they could be a part of a cooperative, you know, they can actually um, try to sell directly to the consumer, right? And as I mentioned, the fee is extremely low. It's only 0.6% standard rec rate to cover the transaction fee. And uh, I think the benefit for agricultural produce is also that because it is not tied to a particular brand name, right? So, you know, as long as you have good produce, you're able to tell a convincing story. You know, consumers would be interested to buy your products. And then because the way that we built the platform is such that it is more distributed, it doesn't centralize so much to a few top major merchants, which tends to happen for search-driven platforms uh, like Amazon that you mentioned, right? In our model, whereby, you know, maybe because, Tim, you've shown an interest in buying purple corn from a certain province, I'm going to show you like other provincial specialties, right? And maybe one of those provincial specialties could be a certain kind of apple, right? It's like a white apple. And maybe, you know, you think like, hey, you know, a pure milky white apple, like that's really cool. I've never tried one before. And you might share it to your other friends, right? And so I might be in the market for apples. And honestly, there are so many apple producers, right? I might just be going by, hey, uh, but, you know, Tim shared this with me. It looks kind of cool. And I might go with that merchant, right? Instead of all the traffic aggregating to just, uh, you know, the top two results for apples. So because there is this element of recommendation, I think it still allows for uh, little clusters of demand to form for, you know, even the more small to mid-tier sort of merchants on the platform. So I think having that sort of focus on product discovery and enabling farmers to go direct to consumers is something that really empowers the farmers and also gives them a more direct sense of connection, right? Because now they can actually read the feedback, right? Get the feedback from the consumers and they might say things that they previously were not aware of, right? Like, hey, you know, did you know that your smaller apples are like a lot sweeter than like the medium-sized ones or something like that, right? So things like that, that maybe they could use to improve their business or just improve how they market to uh, the wider community. You know, one of the things that we have seen is that there's a rising trend of sort of younger people who are also going back to the countryside. So, you know, I think in the previous decades, we've witnessed very major rural urban migration. Now there's some of that reverse migration happening because the younger people are also thinking about settling down, you know, starting their own businesses and often showcasing their hometown specialty produce online is, you know, a very accessible career path, right? You don't necessarily need to be a university graduate. You just need to, you know, have access to the products, which sometimes because you come from the village, the farmers are more willing to transact with you. And so you can then uh, sort of apply a little bit of know-how. And we also have training courses to help the farmers, you know, learn the basics of running a business online. So then that actually puts the power back in the hands of the farmers to really try and build a business reaching directly to consumers and capturing more of the economic gains, right, from the whole 
you know, production uh, value chain. So that also means that, you know, they have more ability to reinvest into their operations. And we have seen many examples whereby, you know, small villages now have ancillary services that have popped up, right? So there could now be, you know, a small packing shed, right? So there are people who maybe are not so physically able who can now maybe take part in that e-commerce economy, right? Because they're just sitting down and, and packing boxes, and in that example, say, you know, I'm selling these apples and I have a ton of success on Pinduoduo and I've sold all my apples directly. All right. Next year, I'm going to have apple harvest again. Do I retain connection with all of those customers or do I have to kind of like, you know, try to get discovered all over again? Uh, short answer is uh, you can still retain a connection with those customers. So we have a full suite of merchant tools on the back end. So you can just manage your store, right? So there's a CRM. You can, you know, send in-app messages to people who have bought from your store before to say like, hey, you know, we've got new products, right? Or like, hey, uh, my cousin Joe um, is now producing, you know, a certain type of produce, right? And I'm selling it on my store. Do you want to give it a try? So there's all kinds of ways, just like a regular e-commerce store for the merchants to engage with their consumers. And, you know, if they want to advertise, right, to get extra traffic, there are also those um, advertising tools available to them. In, in the same example, if I'm that apple grower and I, I'm starting on the platform for the very first time, what is working well for farmers to sell directly on this platform? Is it, you mentioned live streaming earlier, is that the best or what else are they doing to develop this buzz around their product? Yeah, I think live streaming when used well is a very powerful tool because it allows people to get a lot of information in a short period of time. Right, versus spending a lot of time writing text, putting pictures which are static, which could be doctored. Um, people still feel like, hey, at least you know, if you're live streaming, it's, it's a bit more real, right? Like you're walking through the orchards, you're showing people like, okay, this is how you know, I'm growing these apples, right? This is the natural habitat, right? So people can interact directly with the farmer and build up that connection. And I think, you know, initially in the early days, just word of mouth is still very important, right? So a number of them, they'll try to get maybe a few of their, their friends, right, to start buying their products on the platform just to show some support, uh, leave some good reviews. So again, very similar to, I think, other e-commerce platforms. And then, you know, through the, the sharing, through the team purchase, try to spread, right, and get more traction for their products. So I think on our platform, we also give training for the merchants on, you know, how to do a live stream if you've not done it before, or what are some of the best ways to just get your initial sales going, etc. And we also run, you know, regular kind of promotions and campaigns. So if, you know, there's like, say, a local harvest festival, right, we're spotlighting local produce, right, you can put in an application to be featured, right? And so if you get featured, then that gets you a lot of traffic and it's free, and so from our perspective, you know, it's a balance of just giving the merchants tools, giving them the training to make sure that they can sort of help themselves and then also creating some extra buzz by organizing, you know, promotions or festivals, etc. And then for uh, farmers in the impoverished regions where they're below the poverty line, we do actually also have a program on our platform where we will especially spotlight them. So on Dodo Orchard, the game that I was talking about where you water trees and you know get a box of fruit as a reward, we try to procure the fruit that's the reward from the impoverished regions. So people would know that when they're receiving this fruit, they're also helping a farmer who's 
so are living below the poverty line, right? And then we also have a section on the game where it refreshes daily and you can see a certain merchant that we spotlight that could be, again, you know, uh, living in an impoverished county, but, you know, producing uh, pretty good produce, etc. And all of that is done free of charge, right? So we basically give that marketing support as a form of kind of like an aid, right, to support these farmers. Yeah. And I know you mentioned earlier, like, the, you know, the tools that you're helping them kind of market themselves and, and promote their product. But I also know you're going beyond that and actually trying to assist with more of the agronomic side and the operational side of their business as well. Can you talk about that and why that's important for Pinduoduo to be a part of? Sure. Um, I'm glad you asked the question because this is something that, you know, we're still in the very early days of. And so it's certainly something that we would welcome you know, more partnership in. So if you're listening and, uh, you know, you are keen to work on digital agriculture in China, drop me a line. So the reason why we're interested in this is really just coming back to the fact that, you know, China has a very large base of smallholder farmers and the pace of digitization, I would say, is a bit uneven, right? So most of the digitization we've seen in agriculture in China has started more from the downstream, like what I've shared with you in terms of e-commerce. But in terms of the upstream, this is something that has been a bit of a pain point, right? So because all the farmers are, you know, largely working with small plots of land, you know, certain technologies may not make economical sense to be deployed, right? So I think like very basic kind of machinery, you know, China's well covered in that. But then for other things, say drip irrigation, you tend to benefit more from just having a large contiguous plot of land that you can work with. Same thing if you want to have, say, mechanized weeding or some of the other technologies that we've seen in the U.S., for instance, right? You, you benefit from having a large farm, you know, nice big spaces in between the rows, and you can just have the machines plow through on that. In China, you know, you might be a farmer that's farming a rather hilly patch and not really suited for you know, running electricity or um, doesn't have that great connectivity. So that's where I think the productivity has kind of suffered. And we are also seeing that, you know, the farmer population in general is also aging. So I think if we look forward to the future, we have to think like, how do we ensure that, you know, consumers 10, 20 years down the line can still be getting good quality produce at a good price? That has to start with introduction of technologies upstream. And that's why Pinduoduo is so interested in that because we recognize that, you know, we have a large user base of 700 million plus users. And through our platform, through those stores, right, we perhaps reach about 12 million farmers, right? So that's also a very sizable base. So how do we use our position and the information that we have to help farmers improve their production? So some of the things that we've done is one, work with the agronomic research institutes. So we have a partnership with China Agricultural University on training the new farmers. So they might provide, you know, specific knowledge on the type of crop, right? Just to share with the farmers, like, okay, these are the latest developments. These are what you should be doing. So there's that service that, you know, they can provide through live streaming, for instance, or through offline courses. And then on a more local basis, we also work with the local agronomic research institutes uh, in Yunnan province, for instance, in the southwestern part of China, where, you know, together with the local government, we target certain farms in counties that are living below the poverty line. And then we work with them to come up with an action plan, right? So the agronomists are coming up with 
ideas, you know, for your particular terrain, uh, for your particular climate, what type of crop may be more valuable, may be suitable to grow. And then for us, because we provide that market access, it makes the farmers more receptive, right, to actually adopting some of these changes because we can supplement it with, yeah, and we have the data, we can show that, you know, for these types of products, it fetches this price. So they know that it's not just some you know, well-meaning, top-down initiative that says, oh, you poor farmer, you should do this, right? It's actually something that is very comprehensive because there's the agronomic advice, but there's also the market visibility, right? So we support with some of the marketing resources, like I mentioned earlier. And so with that path to market, the farmers are more willing uh, to engage and adopt change. And in some cases, we also provide funds to help organize the farmers into a cooperative, right? So then you know, the jointly working a larger plot of land where we can then introduce things like drip irrigation, for instance, which is not exactly cutting-edge technology, but is still new to that part of China. So that's an example of how, you know, we work together with different partners to try and improve the upstream production. And then at the same time, you know, we're also trying to see how we can bring some of the more cutting-edge technology closer to the farmers. So again, in terms of the farming population, we know that there are some farmers perhaps dealing with higher value crops such as you know strawberries. They may have moved on to perhaps more modern production in greenhouses and they may have more capacity to adopt new technologies. So last year we organized our inaugural Smart Agri competition whereby we actually invited AI teams to compete against traditional horticultural teams in growing strawberries in a greenhouse in Yunnan. So the, the twist here is that the AI teams were growing the strawberries remotely. So we had teams from Wageningen University, we had teams from Nanjing Academy, we had uh, China Agricultural University, and they were all doing it remotely, right? So they were able to see, you know, the inputs from that greenhouse. They could see the temperature, they could see uh, the humidity, they could see the brightness and, you know, how the plant was, um, you know, being affected by those inputs. And then they could tweak the algorithm to adjust those inputs, right, to yield uh, more fruit. And what we saw at the end of that growing process was that the AI teams were able to grow, on average, uh, about three times more fruit by weight compared to the traditional teams. So this was a very impactful way of just demonstrating to traditional farmers that, look, you know, yes, um, you know, some of the new technologies do cost a bit more, but these are the benefits, right? It can yield you three times as much volume and then when you look at the bottom line, the ROI was still 76% higher for the AI teams on average versus the traditional teams, right? And so before the competition even ended, some of the traditional farmers had engaged one of the teams, you know, who had a startup to basically try and commercialize the technology, right? They were saying, this is amazing. We need to have it in our production area. How can we uh, also, you know, use your know-how and grow strawberries, you know, with less labor, uh, but with greater yield. Well, I know you have spent time in the U.S. and other places throughout the world. Do you see the Chinese buying habits that have made Pinduoduo so successful, you know, also applying to other parts of the world like the U.S.? Yeah, so this is a question that we get asked a lot. And people often ask, you know, like, do you think PDD would work uh, coming into a certain country, etc.? So I think this is something to 
observe closely, right? I think um, perhaps in the US, just given my personal experience, I think for a certain category of products, word of mouth might just be really important, right? And so if I think about, say, infant care, for instance, this is something where uh, Facebook themselves, right, on their earnings call, uh, you know, they always say that uh, there are all these groups, right, Facebook groups that have formed to discuss certain things, and those have very high engagement rates. So I think that does demonstrate that, you know, for, for certain types of products where people value advice and where, you know, the, the product itself is either a high price item or, you know, the cost of buying the wrong product is quite high, then really that, that platform, right, for sharing of information, for being able to tap the wisdom of trusted advisors, that's really important. So I would think that actually for the agricultural community, that's also very similar, right? The cost of, you know, getting the wrong inputs and then going through an entire cycle, just working with the wrong stuff, that's very high, right, for a farmer. And I think that's probably also why you know, groups uh, or businesses like Farmers Business Network have really caught on, right? So I think when we look at different parts of the world in different communities, you know, what I would look out for is kind of the, the traits, right, of that certain vertical that we're looking at, rather than try to generalize and say broadly, like, oh, you know, people of a certain country don't like to share, right? Or people of a certain country would never want their friends to know what they are buying. Like, I think, that may be more nuanced than what some people realize. The last but not least, I, I thought it was interesting you all are listed on NASDAQ being such a China-focused company. What, what was the decision there? Sure. So behind that was basically, I think, when we first listed in 2018, you know, PDD has always had ambitions of being an international company. So right now, operations are solely in China, but I think there's potential for us through agri-tech, through food tech, right, and, you know, research collaborations with other people in other parts of the world to become a more international company. So the reason why we listed on NASDAQ was basically to appeal, right, to the wider international community. And I think, you know, over the course of our five years plus of our history, I think we have really built out our business in China and tried to innovate on all kinds of things. So I haven't mentioned it, but in terms of agricultural logistics, that's something that we're actually investing quite heavily in as well to enable the next day pickup of grocery items, right, in your local neighborhood. Like literally just 100 meters away from your home, you can go pick it up yourself. Like that's a system that we're, you know, spearheading and trying to build in various parts across China. And that's something that I think potentially, you know, in other parts of the world could be interesting, right? So we have a very sizable market in China that we can experiment with, that we can scale things up, improve things out very quickly. But potentially some of these technologies or these learnings, we think that, you know, it could be applicable in other parts of the world as well. And similarly, I think technologies from the rest of the world could also really help, you know, Chinese farmer and Chinese consumer. Xinyi, thank you. This has been such a great interview. I really appreciate this. Anything that either we didn't get to or that you would just like to emphasize as we close out? So we have, I guess, I, I think I can just mention this other initiative that we have, uh, which is actually on um, food safety. So I think, you know, looking to the future in terms of how Pindodua sees itself, you know, we mentioned that we're interested in improving the upstream efficiency 
We're trying to improve the midstream efficiency as well by coming up with Duoduo Grocery, which is next day pickup of fresh produce enabled, right? Trying to match local supply and local demand. But further downstream, we're also working on food safety related technology. So we have a research collaboration with the Singapore Institute of Food and Biotechnology Innovation to try and come up with a lower cost method for testing fresh produce for pesticide residues. Because as the world moves towards more e-commerce, right, certainly after COVID, I think that's only here to stay, you know, people still need to have reassurance as well, right, that what they're buying online is also, you know, quality vetted, right? It is also something that is similar, that they can trust uh, to what they used to buy perhaps from their offline channels. And I think if we want to enable more of that, you know, farm to table direct kind of connection, we also need to invest in technologies that can help and work with these more distributed and decentralized systems. So that's another thing that PD is investing in. Well, thank you so much again to Zinyi Lim for being on the show. Such a fun episode for me to learn about Pinduoduo and understand some of these innovations that are happening in e-commerce and, of course, what this might mean for the future of agriculture. Could you see this concept catching on where you live? I'm curious. Let me know maybe on Twitter. I'm at Tim Hamrich, or you can via email as well, tim at aggrad.com. Reminder to fill out that audience survey, please, that I mentioned at the top of the show. This feedback will absolutely impact where things go from here. So please let me know your thoughts. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.